Tonight we're having the uh, Patient-Led Research Collaborative. They are our first um, organization that we're having on as a sort of collective guest speaker. Um, but we're going to use the same format that we've used for guest speakers in the past. Um, so we'll start with some a, a conversation with questions that are uh, of interest to the general community, and then we'll open it up to a live public Q&A and give everybody a chance to ask their own questions. Um, great. Okay, so the Patient-Led Research Collaborative is a group of patients with long COVID and associated illnesses such as ME-CFS and POTS who are also researchers. PLRC was born out of the Body Politics Support Group and they did the first ever research on long COVID in April 2020. PLRC brings together researchers from relevant fields, biomedical research, participatory research, neuroscience, cognitive science, public policy, machine learning, human-centered design, health activism, and others who also have personal intimate knowledge of COVID-19 and chronic illness. Okay, so welcome, Amy, Lisa, Hannah, and I think... Um, Megan and Hannah Way will be joining us later. Megan is joining us now. Great. Uh, so I'm going to pass it to each of you in turn. And if you could just briefly introduce yourself and say what your role is um, at the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. So let's start with Amy. Hi, friends. Uh, I'm Amy Weiss. I work on development for Patient-Led, mainly fundraising and business operations. Okay, great. That was short. Megan? Hi, um, I'm Megan Fitzgerald. Um, I have a doctorate, a PhD in neuroscience and neurology, um, and I got sick with COVID in March of 2020 and subsequently developed long COVID. Um, and I've been working with um, patient-led since about December of 2020. Um, and I've been working on various studies with them, um, principally the most recent reinfection survey. Cool. Okay. And uh, Hannah? Hannah Davis. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah Davis. Um, I'm a co-founder and co-lead of Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Um, I wear a lot of hats, but I tend toward... Um, database things since I did a lot of data work before I got sick um, and do a lot of research-based advocacy. And right now I'm leading a phenotyping project um, and helping on a couple other projects, including the reinfections and other advocacy work. All right. And then finally, for the moment, Lisa McCorkle. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Daniel, for having us. I'm Lisa McCorkle. I'm another one of the co-founders of Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Um, got sick in March of 2020. And my background is in public policy. Um, and a lot of the work I do for PLRC also wear a lot of hats. Um, but I coordinated the Patient-Led Research Fund, um, where we um, granted out about $5 million in research funding to 10 different projects. Um, I um, co-lead the Hypothesis Journal um, and do work on advocacy 
um, using my policy background. So thanks for having us. My pleasure. Yeah. And Lisa and Hannah, I know you guys have been on uh, the long COVID hour before. So great to have both of you back and Amy and Megan too. So uh, let's kind of go through and explain what PLRC is because it's not immediately obvious. Can you talk about like how it started? What was it like in the beginning and maybe how it's changed to what it is now? Yeah, I can start. Um, yeah, I think, um, well, so we, we were all, the co-founders were all first waivers. Um, there are other co-founders, um, Gina Asaf and Athena Akrami um, were all first waivers and we, we all got sick and we were all part of the body politic support group. Um, and I think for those of you who are on it, you re would remember the Slack group was divided into channels. And so I think un unlike some of the Facebook groups, it made it a little easier to self-organize. And there was a channel in particular called Data Nerds, um, which we always say were like full of people whose coping skill was, or coping strategy was to just kind of learn everything um, they could about the illness and just really constantly keeping an eye out for research, which, you know, in, in March and April, 2020, there was nothing. Um, but just trying to understand what was happening to us. And um, our co-founder, Gina Asaf, had the idea to uh, launch a survey just because there were literally thousands of people um, who joined Body Politic overnight. And, um, you know, we're all really experiencing a lot of the same things that weren't reflected at all in the popular narratives. Um, and so she launched the survey and then um, all of us and, and a bunch of other people um, volunteered to help with kind of like the data analysis and writing up the report. And um, the whole thing was done in like nine days. And it was the first report on long COVID. And we, I think we put it out on May 2nd, 2020. Um, and from there, it, it just became clear. I think we, we ended up getting a lot of interest from organizations like uh, the CDC, and at the time, Long COVID SOS, and a lot of the European groups had um, been working on the the um, long the message in a bottle campaign, and that got the attention of the WHO. And they all wanted data. You know, they they would say, you know, we're hearing kind of anecdotes that this is happening, but like anecdotes aren't enough. And so our data, which was the only data at the time. Um, was able to be used to kind of say this was happening and to start advocating for um, for care and research and, and support. Um, yeah, other people want to add? That initial paper with that survey had such a huge impact. I, even this year, when I was applying for my the clinical trial that I participated in, they cited that survey in the consent documents that I had to sign. That's so wild to to me. Yeah, I think we we none of us understood kind of the impact it was going to have. We all really just started, you know, doing the research for to get answers for ourselves. But um, yeah, it did end up being a really highly cited um, first couple of papers. Yeah. Anybody else want to add anything about um, the early days of PLRC and how it's evolved? 
I can jump in. I think that it is one of the things that it's evolved that I, I think is really beautiful is become um, sort of a platform for lots of individual activists and researchers to come together. Um, there's, a, you know, there's many of those platforms in the long COVID space um, and uh, associated um, conditions. Um, but I think uh, for me, PLRC has been just a remarkable spot um, to, as a place to ca- congregate. Yeah. Okay. Um, Lisa, I saw you go off mic. Did you want to add something too? Yeah. Um, I think, so one of the things with those early days, like we never intended to, you know, create an organization or we didn't really know. We just really wanted answers for ourselves and for the community that we found ourselves in. Um, and it just kind of naturally led from one thing to another. Like we had, we did our first survey um, that got some attention and then we realized, you know, that wasn't comprehensive enough. There are more symptoms that people are experiencing or that we're experiencing that we need to document. We need something citable. Um, and so that led to our, our second survey, which was then published in the Lancet C Clinical Medicine. Um, and really just recognizing that, you know, I think because a lot of us had research backgrounds, we realized that we needed to, um, like, it felt like we weren't being taken seriously, unfortunately, just by like sharing our experience, which is ridiculous in and of itself. But our healthcare providers weren't taking us seriously. Um, family members weren't. And unfortunately, that's still happening, even with all of the data out there. But um, we felt like, okay, one way to solve that problem is to collect data and show this isn't just like happening, like this is a, a huge problem because um, we were seeing it and we wanted to be able to document it. Um, so that was a lot of kind of the beginning stages was really seeing that there was this huge crisis happening, but no one at the public health levels, like no one in government was really paying attention. The only people who were paying attention were people who had an existing infection associated chronic condition like MECFS or POTS or the disability community. Like they were the only ones that were saying and like that this could be an option from a COVID infection. Um, So a lot of what we were uh, focused on was, you know, just trying to raise awareness of how big of a problem um, this is and trying to identify trends and you know, see if any any treatments even at the beginning were were helping people. Yeah, um, it, that reminds me of a question I wanted to ask. Listening to Hannah's introduction, you said that you do research based advocacy. Does that mean like you're advocating based on the results of the research PLRC is doing? Or are you advocating for research? Because what Lisa was just describing sounded like the former, but I I know that you also do the latter. Did that question make sense? Yes, it did. Um, Yeah, I'd say we do both. So we do, um, our advocacy is based, is data driven and is based on on data because often that's what, you know, policymakers will listen to. Um, it's what healthcare providers will listen to is that data. Um, and, you know, I think that's um, a very powerful way to, to 
do advocacy, um, but then we also advocate for research. So a lot of our advocacy is advocating for better research, research that is more patient informed. Um, it's more inclusive of more symptoms. Like at the beginning, we knew that we were experiencing way more than just a respiratory infection. Um, there were so many more symptoms, a lot of neurological symptoms that weren't being discussed in the media or by the government. And so part of our survey was like, okay, we're going to document all of these symptoms and show to the people in power that we're experiencing more than a respiratory infection. Um, and we need to warn people of this. Um, so it's, you know, that side um, of, you know, trying to get better research and then also trying to get more research. At the very beginning, there was so little research being done on long COVID. Like, again, we were the first to do it. It took a, a little while to get things started. I think the other first um, research that was done um, like UCSF, Michael Peluso and Stephen Deeks were very forward thinking with starting the link cohort. Um, but there was very little that was being discussed in those early days. Like it was, I, I feel like it was like, it was barely anything it felt like for the first year. Um, so we were also pushing for more research and we continue to do that with, you know, asking for more research funding and really trying to prioritize um, the right types of research. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not testing old hypotheses that are harmful to patients um, and really listening to what is the patient community experiencing and how can we make sure that the research that's being done really reflects that. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. I do unfortunately have to hop off now. I have a family emergency, um, so I need to go, but I just wanted to hop on for the first few minutes and say hello to everyone. And thank you so much, Daniel, for hosting this space. Yeah, thanks, Lisa, and uh, I hope everything's okay. I could add to that a little. I think, um, like what Lisa was saying, a lot of the early days, like we were, there were so many bad narratives. Like the first year, the first year and a half really felt like um, we were constantly countering like public narratives about like what long COVID was or what COVID was like COVID recovery happens in two weeks or COVID only causes respiratory symptoms. And then, you know, when antibody tests started coming out, like a huge number of people, particularly like women and people under 40 weren't making antibodies. And um, so then we were kind of on the lookout for studies about antibodies and trying to communicate that you know, that wasn't a valid enough test and COVID clinics started using PCR and antibody tests to, to prevent care. And, um, and then, you know, when, when after vaccines came out, there was this narrative that, you know, no one could get long COVID or no one could get COVID um, if you were vaccinated. So then we were countering that. And now more recently, it's been like, um, you know, if you, already got COVID once, you're not going to get long COVID on a reinfection. So it's just countering that. So I think a lot of what, what we focus on is like data that counters those narratives that we know from lived experience aren't exactly um, the case. And we've also learned, I think, from like the disability community and MECFS and dysautonomia communities that like there are bad actors that will use the same narratives. Um, to dismiss like like infectious onset patients 
And so early on, you know, we know like there were people who said like HIV AIDS was psychological or MECFS was psychological. And, um, you know, they told us, oh, you should, you know, be aware that these narratives are going to happen about you too. So um, one of the papers we put out recently with this um, long COVID patient and psychiatrist, Yohai Rem um, from PLRC, um, like put out data that specifically kind of countered those narratives. So um, it showed that, you know, people with long COVID have good coping skills and, um, you know, don't have higher rates just from joining a support group, um, which is one of the the bad narratives, et cetera. Sorry, that was rambly. No, thank you. Um, before we move on, I asked Lisa to come back just quickly because um, in the news today, uh, I'll ask Lisa to say more about this, but um, she published a letter with countless signatories to President Biden. And um, I wanted you to have a chance to tell everyone about that. Like, well, what, what is the letter? Why did you do it? And what are you hoping to get from it? Um, yeah, thank you. So the letter is a letter to President Biden asking him to prioritize long COVID and infection-associated chronic conditions as he's considering his priorities for fiscal year 25 budget. So this wouldn't be this upcoming year, it'd be the year after. Um, but this is really the time that um, he's developing his budget. Um, I wish I had done the letter maybe like a month ago. It might have been a little more effective. Um, but no better for, for next year. Um, so the president usually wraps up his budget before um, before like end of year. And then it goes to OMB. And then they present the president's budget in usually around February. And then it goes to Congress. Um, so just as, as background. So we're trying to kind of influence, hopefully, his... Um, last remaining discussions around um, the budget and really trying to show widespread support for funding. Um, there's like initial indications that there wasn't going to be a lot of funding uh, dedicated to long COVID, um, especially at, for NIH research. It's been pretty silent on what the future will look like there. Um, so we really wanted to come together and show the president, like, we're listening to what you have to say, we're watching, and we really need better investment, much more than what has been provided the last three years. Um, it needs to be sustained. This is a crisis that's not going away, um, especially if you don't fund programs that will help it go away, um, especially if you don't have prevention efforts. Um so overall, just, you know, basically showing the president that there's a large community of people from researchers, clinicians, journalists, organizations that are patient orgs, disability orgs that um, really care about this and are wanting him to value our lives and to have that reflected in the budget. Um, and then an extra ask was for him to bring it up at the State of the Union. It's pretty shocking that when almost 6% and I think more than 6% of Americans have long COVID, 
the president of the United States has barely said it, if at all. Um, and so it would go a long way to show that he values us, that he cares about, um, you know, the future of the health of this country um, if he brings it up in the State of the Union. So that was the the purpose of the letter. Um, everyone can sign on um, and we'll be updating the signatories and um, we're hoping that at minimum it'll start important conversations um, that need to be had within the administration. And hopefully we'll see a budget that reflects that he prioritizes us. Awesome. Okay. So is that something that like we all can sign on to? Yes, everyone can sign on. Um, so if you go to Patient Lud's most recent tweet, I think the third or fourth tweet down has a sign-on link. Um, so please feel free to sign on and share. And we're trying to get some press around it. Um, the Sick Times covered it today. Um, so thank you, Miles, for that. And um, I think it was on NPR today. Um, so hopefully, you know, all the attention on it will lead to the um, really important conversations that need to be had and, and you know, the, uh, help us reach the goals that I know, you know, a lot of us in the community have. Great. Okay. Thank you. If anybody has a link to that tweet from PLRC, can you throw it into the replies? And Lisa, be safe. Uh, safe travels. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, okay. Uh, Megan, I wanted to ask you a question about something you mentioned in your introduction. You said you're working on the reinfection study. What yeah. is that? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we, um, last year we, uh, developed a survey on how reinfections affect, uh, people. Um, and we put that out, um, or we had that open for about six months. It closed over the summer. Um, and so, yeah, we need to, we're analyzing that data at this point. Um, but essentially it's, you know, it's a survey and it's looking at when a lot of long COVID symptoms began, whether it was after a primary infection, after reinfection. Um, and we're going to be comparing that between different groups. We're just looking at also how, um, long COVID symptoms are affecting people um, at this stage of the pandemic as well, um, and how reinfections are affecting people who developed long COVID on their first infection. Um, because, you know, there's some evidence that this might lead to decreased function and increased health problems as well. And I'm hoping that we're, we're going to be able to come out with that, uh, that data pretty soon now. I'm really excited about it. That would be great. I'm personally interested in it because I was totally fine after my first infection and then was reinfected less than two months later. And that's the infection that gave me long COVID. So I think uh, reinfections is a big puzzle. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. And, you know, there, it's it's also the norm, you know, um, in today's world, there are no more precautions being taken, as Lisa was saying. Um, I have a child who's in elementary school and COVID blew through here in September. And I was 
part of me was hoping that that would give us enough immunity to kind of, you know, avoid the holiday COVID season. I think I've gotten four texts in the last two days of people whose kids have COVID again, who had just had it in September. So this is just, you know, it's the world that we live in. Um, vaccination is not protecting us against infections or reinfections. Immunity is not durable. And I have to say that, you know, there are not a lot of teams that are tackling the question of reinfections. Uh, so we thought this was an incredibly important thing to do at this point of the pandemic. And hopefully that data will be, you know, illuminating. I hope so. Uh, so let's segue from there to um, what other research projects is, um, has PLRC either published recently or uh, currently working on, you know, what, what, what kinds of research does PLRC do in general is also a question. Um, that's a great question. I think um, we we do so much that it's kind of sometimes hard to remember everything we have going on. Um, but in the beginning, we, we really focused, um, as we mentioned earlier, on kind of data that wasn't available that we kind of needed to improve care and advocacy for patients with long COVID. Um, so yeah, broadening the understanding of symptoms that it wasn't only respiratory, that it wasn't only hospitalized patients, um, things like that. Um, this year we, we published a couple papers um, trying to look at, we looked at female reproductive health impacts of long COVID, um, which I think most people who menstruate with long COVID know that there's a lot of um, fluctuation around kind of the cycles and things like that. Um, we've done more recently, we did a, a whole review on long COVID. I think one thing we keep seeing in advocacy is just, um, especially more recently, there, there's a lot of people interested in like in long COVID, but they have no awareness of how much research is out there now. We almost have the opposite problem with the, where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers internationally that have come out and um, those papers are not well like distributed. And so we put out a big review in January uh, trying to collect, um, we actually collected like over 300 papers and then the journal made us take out a hundred, which was a pain. Um, so those kind of things, just, you know, papers that will help communicate what it is and communicate um, severity and, and impact and things like that. Um, and then we also do a lot of collaborations, um, which, it, which can really, really range. You know, some of us are in recover and with recover, you don't have a lot of influence on the papers. You know, these are mostly, um, people who are kind of new to this, this world and, um, it's a little bit tokenizing. Um, but other papers, you know, you have a really amazing team, um, like Professor Iwasaki, you know, who really understands the value of patient engagement, which is, you know, that patients can help form interesting research questions. Um, and so we do a lot with, you know, various teams around both the country and the world. We do a lot of international work also. Um, and we also help on some EHR papers. We, we're a partner of N3C, which is um, a group that kind of is in charge of the long COVID EHR, uh, electronic health record data in the U.S. And um, uh, Megan works with them and I work with them. And they're an interesting team because they're great with patient engagement. 
Um, but the data set, like EHR data, is really, really difficult with long COVID because there's huge biases in, um, you know, whose infection got documented. And, um, you know, for, for PCR and antibodies, there's just demographics that don't pick up COVID in the same way. And um, there's populations that are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety. So you have, um, you know, misdiagnoses of anxiety in, in EHR too. Um, and it's it's basically like our work is kind of constantly expressing to people like the lived experience and reality of having long COVID and, and just all of these small things that people, um, people who are researchers who don't have long COVID just don't know about kind of the real world situation of, um, of long COVID. But in addition to our research, we also, we do um, like patient engagement projects. So um, Lisa mentioned the hypothesis journal. So this is like another form of, um, you know, putting patients at the forefront of research where patients themselves actually um, do like, like papers on different medical hypotheses. And um, more recently, we, we, we were given five million from um, uh, Balvi, who, and we immediately turned around and, and distributed that to people who can kind of do quote unquote more like, like real, like non-survey based research, I guess, um, biomedical research. And so we, that was like a panel of patients um, who decided where that should go to and. Um, and awarded that funding, and that was what led to the to funding Michael Peluso's trial. So we do things like that as well. Got it. So does PLRC not do biomedical like laboratory research on its own? No, we are a fully distributed team. Um, so almost all of our work has been survey based. Um, a lot of our, our team members have worked in labs before, um, like Megan and others. Um, but generally, anything like that is done like with collaborators who have those resources. Got it. So, so we're not leading that research, but we join on as subcontractors or advisors. Mm -hmm. I see. And do you want to mention uh, the Paxlovid paper? This was something I had the opportunity to contribute to because I, I did this uh, like off-label three-week course of Paxlovid back in the spring, and I got connected with someone at PLRC to uh, contribute that like anecdote to a a, a paper with other patients who were con contributing to that, and I think maybe some other people here contributed to that. Yeah, that was Allison Collins. Oh, sorry, Hannah. Yeah, go ahead, Megan. Yeah, I was. Um, I can just um, mention that that was um, Allison Cohen's work, um, and she's another long COVID patient. She's affiliated with um, UCSF, and uh, yeah, it's a really interesting paper um, that is a case series, um, entirely patient led and patient contributed. These weren't doctors submitting on behalf of patients. These are patients speaking with their own voices and providing rigorous medical evidence of their own experiences and conditions. Um, so I know she's in the process of getting that published, but I'm actually, I'm working with M M3C on 
uh, Paxilva paper and the EHR, and that's one, you know, we're, we're citing the preprint on that because it, it is really significant um, and important for the field in terms of hypothesis generation and just, you know, first-person evidence. Cool. So for that paper, the, the one you mentioned with EHR data, you're just looking to see, like, did doctors put in their patients' uh, medical records that they had been prescribed Paxlovid, and then you look at like what happened after that. Exactly, exactly. So this is, this um, is different from um, the paper that you participated in, in that these are people who don't yet have long COVID. These are people of acute COVID and are prescribed Paxlovid during the course of the infection. Um, and the VA did a similar study and um, N3C is looking to see what they will replicate uh, or how they'll replicate this in a larger cohort. And I don't want to, you know, speak too much about the findings um, because it's, you know, hasn't been published yet, but um, yeah, that should be coming out pretty soon. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Um, okay, and then what what else, like, besides research does PLRC do? Uh, you, you mentioned advocacy. So I, I imagine that plays a role. Yeah, we do a lot of advocacy. Um, we do a lot of medical provider education, I think has been another major area. Um, I think since pretty early on, we started working with um, uh, AAPMNR, who has been putting out guidelines on long COVID and did some patient engagement for them. Um, and more recently have been working with Project ECHO, which is like a... Um, CDC adjacent um, international um, medical provider education program and um, many, many different universities and, and medical um, programs and, and institutions. We've just, um, you know, given probably hundreds of talks over the last couple of years. Um, and, it, you know, again, it's, it's all the same kind of thing where it's... It, in many cases just feels like kind of giving pretty basic, um, you know, pe public health updates that kind of should have been given by um, major public health organizations just on, um, yeah, the, the infrequency of, of having a PCR test or antibodies or um, things like that. But also, um, you know, more recently have been talking about just like treatment um, treatment availability and, and what's possible and um, things like IVIG and LDN that that um, can be transformative for some folks and um, working on clinical trials. We do a lot of just like organization of different stakeholders and trying to bring people together and, um, you know, like raising the bar for kind of what we as a community deserve, I, I think. Um, Making making these organizations kind of think bigger in terms of the um, the reach and kind of the the scope of what they're um, what they're trying to do for us. Yeah. Wow. So so you're involved in like your own research, then you've got government advocacy you're doing, and you're working with medical associations to do provider education working with universities to fund and participate in their laboratory-based research projects. Um, no, no wonder it's hard to keep track of what PLRC does. Um, okay, so like across the board, wh whether it's for research or there's other things, um, like what, 
what are TLRC's like values and goals that help you figure out what you're going to spend your energy on and like what research is worth pursuing? That's a good question. Um, I think, I think really we benefited a lot from growing out of body politic. And I noticed a lot, like some of the other orgs that grew out of body politic have the same thing where um, really early on, it was so disability justice focused. And there were a lot of people from like the HIV AIDS movement and the MECFS movement who came in and kind of like talked to us and, and gave us kind of just, you know, um, basic knowledge about being in this space. And so I think PLRC's values have um, grown from that. We're very, very disability justice focused. We make everyone that joins PLRC like understand the, the 10 principles of disability justice and we really try to ascribe to them whenever possible. Um, in terms of choosing our collaborators, I mean, at this point, it's really about capacity I think we end up having to say no to a lot of things, but um, the only thing we like absolutely say no to are projects that, um, you know, say that long COVID is, is psychological or um, that our exercise or CBT as cure. <laughs> um, other than that, we, we really just, we try to do as much as we can kind of all the time. Um, and I think within our, organization, you know, we hold a lot of personal values, like, you know, we're all sick all the time. Um, we really have to have a health first focus and really be gentle with each other. And, um, you know, know that we're, we're full people coming to the space, you know, we're not characters of, of, um, you know, perfect, you know, professional advocates by any means We're um, we, we, we really kind of want to learn all of the um, you know, the learn from everyone who's come before us about all of these, these kind of things. Yeah. What's it like working with, um, an entire organization where everyone is sick? Well, Amy and Megan speak to that first. I can go after. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, right. If I, if I, I, so my my background, I skipped over this in the, in, in the introductions, but my background is in private philanthropy and sort of building social ventures. So this is, you know, doing this sort of uh, mission-driven work is what I've been doing for 25 years. Um, and when I got sick in March 2020, I had to relearn how to work and how I think now. And um, this was a beautiful space to be purposeful and to have impact while still learning um how I work now um, and doing so amongst comrades who understand um, and, uh, you know, provide space for that growth. Amy, you put that so well. And I would, um, you know, I, I would add, you know, I came as someone with a background in research um, and, you know, now I'm a patient as well as someone who does research on my own condition, which is a, definitely a, a unique experience. Um, but I think working with any team, you know, everybody has its challenges. We are all humans living in human 
bodies. Um, and I think this organization really challenges us to bring um, what we are going through, like holistically in our lives to the plate, as well as having a very data-centered approach, um, which is, ex you know, it, it's really looking at the whole picture um, in a way that nowhere that I've ever worked has been able to, or has allowed, you know, I mean, I didn't spend long in the workplace as a disabled or chronically ill person, but I was there for a while as, you know, a parent. And there was always just such a struggle and such guilt that, you know, you had to compartmentalize um, who you were. And, you know, obviously there's, there's discrimination. Everybody talks about that. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it was really hard. And rather than seeing that as a strength of various team members and working with um, team members to be flexible and to allow them to fill the roles um, in the way that they were capable and to understand that, you know, work experience or, or experience outside of work is life experience that then is brought back into the work environment. Um, it's, you know, it, it, none of my workplaces were ever able to do that. So, I, you know, it really is a unique environment to be working with people who kind of embrace these aspects of your life that maybe you were made to feel ashamed of in a more um, typical work environment. That's really beautiful. I would echo the same exact things. I, I think um, for me, when I first got sick, like, I, I mean, I still do have pretty bad brain stuff, but it was so, so bad at first. And um, I, I just remember, I think Lisa saying early on, like, <laughs> that, that even though it was bad, it was still useful. I think it, it has felt really lucky to just kind of immediately enter a community that, um, that is gentle in that way. And, um, you know, um, yeah, just everyone is kind of gentle with each other. Um, and as far as like kind of our formal rules go for like working with a team, I mean, one thing we do wherever we can is to have like intentional redundancy. So we'll have like two, at least two people, sometimes three people do the same role or the same task or um, just so that there's like a with the brain fog, you know, it's so hard to remember everything um, that probably one one person will forget. Um, but also so that you know that you kind of actually do tangibly have the space to say, like, I can't do it today. Um, my symptoms are too bad. Um, so, you know, that there's someone else kind of doing the exact same thing. And that's like so opposite of what kind of our our capitalist culture is always kind of pushing for is like efficiency and um, streamlining, but I think the the intentional redundancy has helped us quite a bit, um, especially with data stuff. I, I think um, in our earlier surveys in particular, we had like three or four people doing exactly the same analysis, just so that we were very, very sure of the numbers we were putting out because of, of the high brain fog. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. I, I like that. And thanks for getting into the details a bit. Um, I was thinking about like my own work, which has been very accommodating to me, but it hasn't, I wouldn't say it's been gentle in the way you were describing. So that, that actually sounds like it could make a difference too. 
Like I, my, my work has been accommodating enough that I've been able to keep my job, but I, I wouldn't say I feel like they totally get what I'm dealing with and, you know, have patience with me at all times. I think it's like the access needs thing that um, Alice Wong and others have talked about. Like there's just, there's an immediate understanding among everyone in PLRC of just kind of your, your restrictions of daily life that you don't have to explain. And that, that alone, that lack of explaining um, really, really goes far. Um, Also Hannah Way's here. Oh, great. Hannah, can you request to be a speaker and join us up here? And once you join, I'll have you introduce yourself. Um, In the meantime, uh, let me see. I wanted to ask. um, All right, one second. Hannah. And then we'll go back to my question. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Um, hey, can you just, uh, we did this at the beginning with everyone else, but can you just briefly introduce yourself and say what your role is at PLRT? Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm on a, uh, a different time. So I'm in Tokyo right now. So I, I haven't been able to join earlier. Uh, my name is Hannah Wei. I am the other co-founder at the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Uh, my background is in computer science and biomedical computing, and uh, my role at PLRC has mostly been taking care of the infrastructure, um, making sure that we uh, are able to have good pipelines for doing research and also for funding. I'm really happy to be here and really happy to uh, chat about what we've been doing and uh, happy to see familiar faces as well. Wow, thanks for joining us from Tokyo. That that actually uh, reminds me of a question I wanted to ask. Uh, are, so is PLRC like all over the world or is it US-based? We are uh, fully remote, although most of um, our team members are in either Europe or North America time. We also have a team in India as well that um, myself and Gina Saf are leading uh, some projects on. Uh, so we... I think a lot of our projects are uh, more U.S. and North American centric, but we do have um, PLRC members all across the world. Wow. How big is We're PLRC? We're up to 10 countries now. 10 countries. Wow. That, that's amazing that you're all able to collaborate across time zones and like regulatory regimes and everything. Yeah. So I, I guess if you're not doing like laboratory experiments, do you have to deal with IRBs? We do. Uh, for for certain projects, we do have to deal with IRBs. Uh, the original report that we wrote and uh, and the subsequent publications, we got an IRB from University College London, and that was uh, Dr. Akami's connections. Cool. Um, okay, so we were talking about uh, mission and values, uh, talking about working with a team that's chronically ill. Uh, I'm just trying to pick up my train of thought here. Um, oh, I wanted to ask each of you what um, research or other PLRC accomplishments you're each most proud of, either personally or like what you're most proud of the organization accomplishing. And um, let's see, Amy, do you want to go first? No, because I don't have mine yet. 
So come back. Okay. Uh, well, does anyone have something they're proud of? Let's start with that. I hope so. PLRC seems like nonstop accomplishments. Um, I, you know, this is not one that I contributed to because I joined the organization um, long, you know, uh, long after it had formed. Um, but I am extremely proud of my colleagues for um, putting out, you know, the first papers defining long COVID. Um, I don't know that I would have known what was wrong with me. I mean, maybe eventually, but I went six months with very strange uh symptoms, including loss of taste and smell, but I did not have that PCR test because I was denied testing in March of 2020. And so I was really fumbling around in the dark. And then my colleague who was also sick and was uh, my past colleague, uh, she was sick and she was struggling with long COVID symptoms, came across body politic, came across PLRC. And, I, you know, it was just the light bulb moment. Um, so I am one of the many patients that that founding team of PLRC um, helped glo globally. Um, and, you know, I'm really honored to be a part of, of our work now. Cool. Um, Hannah, Amy, or Hannah? Uh, I'll be happy to hop in for this one. Uh, I'm quite proud of one of our first collaborations with CMSS, Council of Medical Societies, and uh, funded by PCORI. Uh, it's a series of patient-driven scorecards to get a sense of how well um, organizations collaborate with patient groups. And so we noticed that after a year or so of working with um, our own research and collaborating with academic partners and other organizations that there's certain patterns that came up that you know may empower our team or disempower our team. And so we set out uh, to design a series of scorecards to help other patients like ourselves and our position to make sure that their collaborations are also fruitful. So I'm quite proud of that. It's, it's something that helps to raise the bar to uh, make sure that patient-led research is you know, true to its values and, and carried out not just in tokenizing ways. Can jump on next. Um, so I got sick March 2020, found Fiona Lowenstein's um, New York Times op-ed uh, about her health, and then took me to body politic and sort of have been following along ever since. Um, and I, I follow nonprofit organizations like people follow sports. So um, thinking about the sort of the total landscape of long COVID, ME, um, other infection-associated chronic conditions, um, sort of across the the spectrum of uh, federal government researchers, et cetera, um, and seeing how. So I ended up most spending most of my volunteer work, other than my, sort of my own independent um, advocacy and fundraising, um, for for the movement, um, with patient-led research collaboratives. I think that the their approach um, is to raise all ships. Uh, that even though it's one organization, that there's a lot of folks who are out doing good work and how do we raise, get more resources um, for folks across um, different initiatives who are you know, sort of carved out their niches and trying to do good in the world. Okay, Hannah, your turn. Oh boy. Um, 
I think there, I think it's just the tangible impact of our work in the world. I think, um, you know, we get a lot of messages, like we got one after the nature review that like our paper basically made the Belgian government like allocate um, some money to long COVID and um, our paper was cited in the NIH's announcement of, of the 1.15 billion, you know, regardless of how that went. Um, you know, like Lisa, Lisa, you know, <laughs> Lisa alone, uh, her advocacy has done things like um, getting, you know, the household pulse survey question on long COVID, which has been huge and, and really meaningful in, in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but yeah, I think, I think probably, probably the impact of our papers is, is the biggest one. It's what I'm most proud of. Okay, great. So I'm going to ask um, one last question, and then we're going to go to the live public Q&A. So if anyone listening is interested in asking a question of PLRC, uh, come on and um, raise your hand now, and then I'll, I'll start bringing you on after this. Um, okay, so my last question before we go into that is, uh, what is like the current primary focus areas what are the current primary focus areas of PLRC, uh, like right now in 2023 and 2024 is coming in a few weeks. Um, like what's the strategic goal for 2024? Um, I think we have a few, the, um, definitely we need more funding for research. Um, you know, there, there haven't been any major illnesses that have been solved with a, a one-time investment of a billion. And we need, we need continuous funding. I think like we've talked about on other spaces just to get people interested and, and invest their careers into long COVID research. Um, so that's a huge one. Um, um, continued advocacy, continued medical education, continued kind of, you know, what feels to us like basic public health communications around clean air around the risk of long COVID, um, things like that. And also I, we have a really, really strong focus right now on clinical trials and getting, um, getting research for clinical trials, but also getting, sorry, getting funding for clinical trials, but also getting appropriate, um, study design and endpoints and testing, treatments with curative mechanisms. You know, we want to see a lot of antivirals. We want to see a lot of immunomodulators um, and, and just expanding people's understanding of what can be clinically trialed. Um, yeah. Okay, great. And Amy, Megan, or Hannah, if there's anything you wanted to add to that, uh, feel free. I'll just add that I think that a lot of the work that we have done to date sort of comes through serendipity. Um, so while we have, you know, the areas of work that we want to push forward that we think will make the most impact for the most um, patients and their caretakers um, now and in the future, um, a lot of it's serendipity, depending on, you know, who happens to get sick, someone's loved one happens to get sick, and then a new opportunity comes up. Um, so we try to, you know, put ourselves in places and you know, share within the community, whether it's should go to PLRC or, you know, sort of someone else is best situated to do it, um, to try to take advantages, advantage of those, of those moments.
And I would add, we're still, you know, we're still wrapping up the reinfection study that um, it's a tremendous amount of data that we've collected there. Um, so it's a lot of work to go into the analysis. Um, and that's something that we're I'm definitely going to be focusing on um, in 2024. Um, I had mentioned in the comments as well that uh, we're partnering now with uh, the Visible app and we've got a little um, infections tracker in there, which is going to kind of complement, uh, we did a cross-sectional um, survey, which is, you know, a survey that's done the long, a lot of people, a longer survey length, um, but only at one point of time in the visible app is going to be able to collect uh, longitudinal data. So just, you know, a small amount of data um, over a longer period of time. Um, and so I think between the work that we've done, we're analyzing, and then the work that we'll do with the visible app, will really um, start to understand how um, reinfections are affecting people, particularly those who who have long COVID. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about that from the and the reinfections front in the year ahead. Uh, this is a really tough question to answer because we do have quite a few projects going on. Um, on my end, I'm really excited about uh, our hypothesis patient generated hypothesis journal. So we, we piloted this idea earlier this year um, with six hypothesis patients and edited by our um, patient panel that we, we hired uh, and made sure that we um, you know, went through a rigorous process to select the, the most promising hypothesis um, for long COVID and um, MECFS and related illnesses research and it's been we've been getting good feedback and we've been folks who want to publish this uh in an academic journal or you know make sure that this gets out there and i think we're going to figure out like what are the next steps for this we do want to open our plrc platform to to folks who have great ideas and have great directions for research Okay, great. Thank you all. Um, Can I add one more, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because uh, it hasn't been mentioned, but uh, it needs more airtime, uh, and we're PLRC is not doing enough on it, um, is the economic impact. I think that that, is, uh, that uh, has not been pulled on enough in the public space. Um, I know, you know, in financial institutions, they're talking about it, uh, but not publicly. There's their value added. Um, so I'm sort of putting this out there to the community of, you know, this is an area that we need to be working on. Uh, much more than we currently are as a wedge issue. Yeah, aspirationally, I like it. Uh, okay, so we're now gonna go to the Q and A. Um, I'm gonna quickly read the rules and then I'll start bringing people on. So the rules uh, for the long COVID hour as always are no misinformation, no hate, no attacks on patients, allies, or any participants, no minimizing COVID or long COVID, and three minute max uninterrupted speaking time. With these, um, you know, these like guest speaker ones we've been doing, I, I ask that you stay way under three minutes for your question um, so that we can hear from our guest speakers as much as possible. All right, uh, Charlie. All right, Charlie, you're connected. Did, sorry, did you call my name? Yeah, yeah. Did, did you want to? Ask yeah, that? I actually have a question for Amy. Um, I'm 
I'm generally curious how you all view the kind of general landscape of advocating in this space right now, working in this space right now. One thing that gives me a lot of anxiety and concern is just how few people there are working in this space. You know, I can count maybe 10 people who are working in the in, in the realm of long COVID space, which is, you know, probably the greatest public health crisis going on right now. Do, do you think there is an appetite to fund this type of work right now? Or do you think it's kind of really bad? Um, and what's your kind of forecast for how you things, how things going and how do you generally feel if, if that makes sense? <laughs> Absolutely. I think about this a lot. Um, I think it's bad. Um, I think that uh, the majority of folks in the funding world have moved on from the pandemic um, is no longer the, the crisis is over. It is no longer a thing. So a lot of funders have shifted their priorities because the pandemic is over. Um, I think that that shift is only going to that that and remember, folks in the in the philanthropic class have different rates of like different healthcare. They have different rates of infection. They have different rates of long COVID. It is you know, someone kept packing up this on data, but, you know, long COVID is, um, and, uh, you know, more prevalent in low middle income populations. Uh, and there is, you know, we live in a, all, globally, we live in a, like a wide disconnect between those two parties. Um, I think what we're seeing on the funding side is there are some smart funders who do realize that this is a massive crisis um, and is only going to get worse. Um, so we, and, and it's sort of that, that is because, someone, a loved one is sick, or, you know, they happen to see a way that their financial institution can get, uh, can gain from this, you know, lingering, um, and then this growing problem. Uh, but it's been very hard to fundraise for, um, for PLRC. And we don't, I think don't just think about fundraising for PLRC, but for sort of across the whole movement. Um, early on in the pandemic, the, my most of my volunteer work was with trying to work with the funders that I know to fund mostly their alma maters and their their long COVID clinics, and got some like who are still funding some you know major COVID clinics in the United, mainly the United States, one in Europe. Um, I don't I don't know what the tipping point is going to be. That's sort of why I, I'm pushing the economic angle, and I think that we need to do much more work there. Thank you. Yeah, that makes me scared as well. All right, thanks for your question, Charlie. Um, Stephen? Hi, um, I have a question for um, Hannah Wei. Um, I feel like in the US, we're pretty connected to like patients and like communities generally in like Europe and uh, Canada and Latin America, but I feel like I don't hear a lot um, from Asia and like how the situation, how the long COVID situation is. So I was wondering if you could, I don't know, give us, like tell us about uh, like how, what like the patient activism community is like or, what kind of treatments doctors are giving or if doctors are receptive at all, how receptive researchers are and, or maybe like if there's any interesting trials, um, just uh, generally looking for information. Yeah, that's a really good question. So we've been working with a team in India um, and we've done some qualitative research interviews on the ground with both patients and experts and, we're sort of in the process of synthesizing all that information that people have 
so generously donated to us. Um, so what I could say is that like, at least in, in India, which I can sort of speak to more than other parts of Asia, there's been, there's been awareness of, of long COVID and there's been certain doctors who are, um, you know, either part of MECFS uh, association circles who uh, are able to, you know, keep up with the current research and, and use them towards treatment with, uh, with folks on the ground and in their hospitals uh, who, uh, who kind of push the career in that direction. There's, uh, we hear that to um, to invest in long COVID research and to uh, together a treatment the healthcare system based in hospitals clinics and in individual relationships with patients. Um, there's a lot of uh, just. Hannah, your audio is coming through pretty choppy. I'm not making out um, the last bit. Maybe uh, you can reply to the space or. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Sure. Let me. Oh, you sound, you sound better now. <laughs> okay. That's funny. I just moved. Uh, sorry about that. So I think I was saying that there's not much incentive to uh, form a like a like a program in a hospital because that's primarily where we see a lot of the long COVID patients turn to rather than private practice. Um, there's there's a big uh, financial disparity, especially in India and other parts of Asia, where you know you have the super rich who can hire, who can travel to Europe and, and get treatments, and then you have people who are in more rural areas and they depend on uh, community health experts. Um, so these are folks who are community uh, doctors or, you know, they have their own um, philosophy of medicine. Um, and so it's, 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 there's, there's a lot out there that people are trying, but there's, um, there's, we see very little uh, um, incentive on getting it together in a, in a system. If that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Amy, maybe one, come off yeah, mic. maybe one thing I would want to add is I think one of the reasons why our focus, some of our focus has been on Washington, D.C. is because of the ripple effects it has globally. Um, so, you know, while we, while a good deal of our work is, is based in U.S. or by happenstance, um, part of that is strategic because we think that uh, uh, we have that in mind of thinking about yeah, the global population. Um, a lone long haul lady, I added to you and you can go ahead and ask your question. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for holding the space and thank you to everyone from patient led for being here and for all of your work so far, um, and your ongoing projects. Um, I wanted to ask something, um, Hannah Davis, you mentioned, uh, study design, trial, trial design, and um, I wanted to ask, I, I am unfamiliar with what happened with the drive to try to get PEM added as a code. And I've been interested in 
seeing that, um, seeing, seeing PEM have a code and having PEM be something that can be potentially monitored and controlled for in control trials. And I'm also curious about not just incorporating PEM into the study design, but also controlling for, for, uh, MCAS with study design. I just wanted to know if you, you guys had any, if you were working on anything in particular with regards to that, that you could tell us about. Yeah, that's a really good, great question. Um, Lisa could have spoken more to the ICD code, but unfortunately it was rejected a second time. And so, um, I don't think we're moving forward with that for, for the next year or so, um, which is a bummer because especially with EHR data, um, you know, that's something that it just doesn't get documented at all or as a, as a symptom. And, um, from my understanding, pathophysiologically, like patients who do or don't have PEM are, are really different and, um, are different in, in what kind of treatments they can do and what kind of activities they can do. Um, and we're learning more about like what happens to the body during PEM, like the, the study that came out recently with the basically like necrosis of skeletal muscles, um, you know, that, that just shows that there's kind of different things happening. And I think it's a really important thing to ask about. Um, so yes, we, we, I, I mean, our, our advocacy around study design is a little wider than that, but that is one of our points generally is, um, advocating for PEM. We still just see kind of a failure to understand the landscape in most researchers. I mean, I think the recover exercise trial, um, is a is a good indicator of that where, you know, only after kind of patient advocacy did they even consider looking at PEM. Um, so we, we asked people to use DSQ PEM validated tool, um, the short form, which has to be modified a little bit um, to ask like since your infection rather than I think it's like over the past two weeks. Um, it's also an imperfect tool because um, you kind of have to ask it pretty regularly to get a sense of PEM as it you know, fluctuates from day to day and things like that. Um, we do try to bring up, um, yeah, validated tools that could be useful. Where where the tools are validated, they're more likely to be integrated. So DSQ-PEM and Compass 31 for dysautonomia. Um, there's obviously a ton of validated tools for like heart conditions, for respiratory conditions, um, for some neuro uh, conditions and, and cognitive impairment, although that has also been a challenge because um, the long COVID cognitive impairment can be kind of nuanced and um, specific to like processing speed and recall and things like that. So figuring out good tools is a big part of the advocacy we do around research design. Um, MCAS is really challenging. Like we, we, we really see the need for its... Um, inclusion in these studies, but it doesn't have a validated tool. And so whether or not it's included is really up to um, the various teams. And it's always just kind of a gamble. Um, yeah, whether whether they'll accept something or not. Um, yeah. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, the uh, the ICD code for PEM was a disappointment that I helped out a little bit with that effort. And it, to me, it just seems so obvious that if we want to measure and understand and track 
who has PEM, then we should have a code for it that doctors can put in their patients' charts. But um, yeah, it, it was, uh, I, I think there's still um, work to be done to like communicate what PEM is to the broader medical community. And there was basically just some confusion about what it was that led to it being misunderstood and rejected. Um, all right. Uh, I, there was somebody who I tried to add on who wasn't able to connect and I should have mentioned, um, when you're joining a, a space as a speaker, you need to be on your phone. And sometimes that's the issue. So people will like try to join from a laptop or something, but you do need to be on your phone. Okay. I'm going to bring on, um, Alexander. Hopefully that works. Okay, good. Alexander, you're connected. Can you uh, go ahead with your question when you're ready? Um, okay. And while we wait for Alexander, uh, I there was a question that had been submitted in advance by um, a patient that I thought was interesting. Um, the they, they had heard, um, I, I'd seen this too, Eric Topol had posted about um, a new clinical trial of probiotics and prebiotics. And he said, it's like the first largest randomized placebo controlled trial to show, you know, some help in long COVID. And, um, there was a question about, is that the only trial that showed anything that has helped long COVID? Um, do we have an early indication of success from any other trials? This might be a better question for Stephen. Um, I think there have been some smaller ones. Um, yeah, Stephen, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I mean, that one's a phase three trial. These are like large trials of over two or 300 people. It might have been the first one to be successful there. Um, there have been some like smaller things uh, actually, to be honest, in my mind, like some of the long COVID and like the ME and pot stuff is like melding together. So I'm actually not sure if I could think off the top of my head, like well, specifically post COVID, you know, like randomized control trial, at least there's been plenty of little kind of things um, that's been successful, but it certainly was the first phase three trial. I don't know if it was the highest quality trial, but Yeah. Yeah, that, the, I think basically the answer is um, it's the first phase three trial and it, it wasn't that compelling. So really, we're still waiting. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a reduction of symptoms. It wasn't, you know, a complete alleviation of symptoms that they were seeing. So um, is you know, I think it's exciting because it's showing potential directions um, for research, but it's Certainly not a cure or even a solo treatment. Yeah. Um, okay. I had previously added Alexander. If you're able to hear me now, uh, you can go ahead and ask your question. Well, I'm not actually have a question because I have post-COVID, which looks a lot. Really, it it looks like my dad having post-polio, 
my dad had post polio and I have like the same symptoms and I really the only thing I like is that I understand what my dad went through what he had to accept and the 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 thing he had and post polio is the same as post covid is accepting and um i i really have I'm from the Netherlands, so if you don't really understand me quite right, sorry, but the the hardest thing I have to endure is what I've seen my dad to do is accepting that you can't do that you can't really live anymore that you just lose your life except for your in my case i my my memory and my, my mind is okay but my body well between my bed and my couch is five meters and um, something like that. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story, Alexander, and your father's uh, that that journey of going from healthy to newly disabled is uh, not pleasant, not pleasant for any of us. Um, Okay. Uh, did I bring someone else on? Oh, yes, Sawyer. Did you have a question? Hey, everyone. Yeah, um, I, I had a question kind of around the, the hot topic um, in research recently for long COVID. So there's been a lot of um, research recently kind of targeting the pathology of viral persistence, whether that's replicating or viral debris, the, you know, verdict's kind of out on that. Um, I'm curious if there is anything PLRC is doing kind of targeting that pathology, how you think about viral persistence as one of the possibilities. Um, you know, I think Akiko has talked about, like, she kind of has like the four, <laughs> the four theory breakdowns where like one's autoimmunity, one's viral persistence, um, another's like chronic inflammation, and then like reactivation of viruses. Um, so yeah, curious how, um, you know, uh, PLRC kind of thinks about those possible pathologies and, uh, uh, kind of like what they're doing to target like viral persistence or, or the other pathologies. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think generally we, we keep an eye on all the research. I mean, Professor Wasaki, you know, we, we default to her. Um, definitely think that there could be multiple 
hypotheses for long COVID, but we've done a ton in viral persistence. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the obvious areas to target first, um, no pun intended, um, just because it, it's kind of the the cleanest explanation of what could be going on. Like if that is the case, we um, we would kind of potentially know how to treat it. We could potentially know how to develop a test for it. Um, so in that regard, I mean, we're, we, we're funding one of the only trials designed for viral persistence um, with UCSF and um, Michael Peluso's team. Michael Peluso was a, a HIV AIDS researcher before COVID and, and kind of has um, switched gears almost exclusively to long COVID. Um, so that's with a, a monoclonal antibody called AER002. Um, so that should be really exciting. And that has already started, um, I mean, enrolling, but also the infusions have started. So that that is data we might even see, um, you know, within the next year, which is really exciting. Um, but we've also just as part of what we were talking about kind of earlier in the call, we're, we're just constantly collecting and distributing research to, you know, stakeholders who are interested but not doing that. Um, so we, we've kept a list of viral persistent studies. We are constantly sending that out. Um, we, you know, the we talked earlier about like earlier long COVID advocacy when we were doing work with the WHO. They invited us to um, give research questions that, that were going to be a research priority for them for long COVID. And we requested viral persistence be a major research direction for that. That was in um, February 2021. So we've been working on this for a bunch of years. We always mention it in our kind of major talks to um, Congress and things like that. Um, we, When Recover started, we requested that it be a particular area of research. Um, again, you know, they're, they're taking us, taking our suggestions has been... Um, hit or miss, but we did ask them to, um, we put out a, a, a national research action plan for in mid 2022, which requested viral persistence as, um, kind of one of the top three questions, um, to be explored. Um, yeah, we, we, we've asked the FDA to be looking at antivirals and prioritizing antivirals for that reason. Um, uh, Daniel mentioned earlier, we put out a paper earlier this year on, uh, that was a patient-led paper on um, Paxlovid that was like um, a, a team of 15 people and put out, I think it was 13 case studies on using Paxlovid for to treat long COVID, which is was the first time um, kind of a collection that large had been looked at, like often it's just looked at as a treatment for acute COVID. Um we're, yeah, we're, you know, in conversation with people who are developing better tests and things like that for viral persistence. We're talking about it as an endpoint um, wherever we can in clinical trials. So I'm sure there's other things I'm forgetting, but for viral persistence specifically, that's some of the work we've been doing. Um, and for the other hypotheses, uh, yeah, I think, I think we've actually done, <laughs> done less of those. All right, thank you. And that, that was a question that I'd received in advance from the community. So I'm glad we were able to address that. Uh, okay, I think I brought on responsible Raul. 
if you're connected, you can ask your question. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. First off, I appreciate you guys hearing me out. Uh, you guys doing this stuff. This is, I think, my first time listening to this, and I kind of jumped in late. But uh, I'm basically a first wave long hauler. I've been here since the beginning, you know, from ground zero, not knowing anything, to seeing all the research pop up, and then people recommending Twitter to see how all the doctors are putting research and stuff like that. So it's I've seen how the whole landscape of information for us has changed as long haulers from like nothing to a bunch right now. And uh, I guess my question is now, because I've been thinking about different things going forward, obviously I'm about to reach four years into this in March, is uh, exact, because you guys are talking about activism and putting stuff out there. We talk about funding and we talk about having to deal with like uh, the medical system, not like acknowledging us. You guys talked about the PEM code and having that be acknowledged, stuff like that. Are we are we recording these like uh, conversations? Uh, are are we putting videos out on this stuff? Because when it comes to me and my experience, and what I assume obviously with everybody else is that we are basically our own advocates for our own health. Because once we go to the doctors, they don't really know too much, so they kind of push us to the side. And as someone who's in the Bay Area and has access to the MECFS clinic. Uh, I basically got bounced around in the first year and a half until I got to that clinic. And then once you get there, there's really no treatment or anything. They have like two uh, clinical trial drugs that they try on. But if those don't work, then you're just kind of left on your own and to basically figure out on your own through online forums like Reddit or Twitter or Facebook to kind of figure things out. So kind of my idea, of, my question mainly right now is uh, as we're moving forward. There's a lot of information, a lot of funding being put into this for the average person or the, the new people that are coming into the long COVID world. It's not really that easy to traverse to go through this. And there's a, there's a guy on uh, YouTube, sorry if I butcher his name, it's like Jeez Medinger, something like that, where he's been covering a bunch of long COVID stuff. He's been talking to a bunch of researchers like Akiko um, and just, you know, all the people that have been putting out research. So he's been pretty well on that. Do we have an equivalent of that? Because at this point, since we are our own advocates, it's basically our responsibility to keep up to date with all these studies. And most of us don't really have a background in biology. I had to go back to school and I'm trying to kind of learn. And I've been talking to some uh, some of my teachers who sometimes were researchers for hours trying to cover papers so that I can understand them better so that obviously I can bring them to my uh, doctors so that they can kind of take me more serious or kind of learn themselves. But uh, Part of the activism and part of kind of making this outreach bigger to other people too is kind of putting out these videos continuously doing these conversations but also making it accessible and easy and dumbing it down for people like me or you know people who have maybe a little bit more understanding so that we can bring it up to doctors and just make it more of a big thing so i'm, I'm just i guess my question is um what exactly are we doing on that landscape because it's like, I understand on Twitter, you guys are breaking things down, but I think it becomes a bit more difficult for us bringing it to the doctor. If we just bring in like um, a bunch of papers and kind of summarizing things down when we don't understand it, because these doctors won't really have the time to break down these uh, papers on their own since they're already busy. So maybe make, throwing them videos would be a bit easier because I've done that for some doctors and they kind of viewed them and kind of uh, broken them down and that's kind of helped my situation. But again, it's uh it's kind of fruitless this time if there's not really much that that makes it easier to break down. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you for the uh, the question, um, and and thanks for joining your first long COVID hour. It's good to have you. 
Uh, sorry, you've been going through this for so long. Just to just to read that question back to give the others a chance to um, answer it. Uh, you're asking basically, do you have any advice for patients who are still trying to get basic medical care for their their just their debilitating conditions and you know meeting with doctors that don't know nearly as much about long COVID as we do because we spend all our time thinking about it um so it's more so like what efforts are we putting in to make things more accessible for the average person or the new person coming into this because obviously you guys are working on this day in and day out or more than us so like how, how are we making this easier to digest for us and other people to make it easier to accept as a reality to you know be activists for this ourselves and for the people around us you get what i mean yeah yeah like translating the research into something that we can understand and, and take with exactly, us and 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 explain to more people aren't going to have access to this education some of them don't have even the time to do this they're going to be suffering or pushing through work and then you know keeping in the PEM cycle and making things worse on themselves. So if we really want to help out everybody, we have to make this information easily digestible for the most unknowing person to this, you know? So I'm just wondering what efforts we're doing for that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, PLRC folks, any response to that? Yeah, um, I think I'll give my response and and I I have a follow-up question for um, as well. Um, I... You know, if you follow um, us on, you know, Instagram and stuff, um, as well as some of our collaborators, um, we're putting out um, information and trying to make it easily digestible. Um, and we definitely did that, you know, in, when we were looking for the um, the long COVID um, reinfection study, putting out some facts about, you know, reinfections, um, not only in our network, but with our collaborators like um, Black COVID survivors, um, long COVID Chile and um, long COVID families as well. Um, But I think what would be great to hear is what do you think the most useful form of the information is? Is it, you know, listening sessions like this? Is it um, newsletters? You know, is it, would it be a fact sheet that you can bring to your busy doctor at your appointment? Um, Or, you know, you're saying videos as well. And, you know, just keep in mind, we we do have, you know, limited energy, you can't do everything. Um, But it would be really useful to hear, you know, where should we direct that limited energy? What would be the most useful thing for the patient community? I think coming from my point of view and Basically, you know, we rely on science, data, you know, objective and tangible proof to show moving forward. And, you know, that's just how science works. It takes a long time. For me personally, ideas that I've been thinking about that I wanted to do was getting a group of people who can read, interpret, analyze and criticize, you know, medical journal papers, make videos about discussions on this. Because since I said uh, there's a lot of funding, a lot of papers coming out on a weekly basis and we need to stay up to date on everything because things change obviously that's just science from my point of view i think videos are easy to digest and putting them on youtube or like on social media for like the younger crowd like me or you know gen z or whatever it is but that's my point of view i think having like these weekly discussions bi-weekly monthly discussions to cover the new research coming out and just trying to interpret it for the average person and criticizing it too and seeing what we need to wait for going forward for me would be the best because Again, we can break things down, but for a person to have, like, I guess, credibility, especially in this age of, like, misinformation where there's a bunch of AI trying to, like, discredit stuff or just make weird stuff, it'd be nice to have, like, a source of 
just reliable information with reliable people to kind of go off of and be able to build my foundation off of that. You know what I mean? Uh, spot on. I should just name because I'm always going to be fundraising. Uh, on our like high on our list is to you know get some money to pay for folks to do this science communications to translate the research into both for you know sort of the patient population and their caretakers to understand um, as well as as for doctors. So that is like that sort of how we think about communications education. Uh, that is a targeted area that we hope to do more on. And just want to add for the, just to, to bring something to your doctor, that's why we wrote the Nature Review, because there's 200 um, papers in one place, and we've had so much feedback that that was like the first time their doctor or their family member or whatever believed them, um, even if they were skeptical. So it's not a, not a video or not for self-knowledge necessarily, but for convincing other people. Um, unfortunately, uh, we recommend that just for the citation value great okay well maybe somebody can um put a link to that paper uh in the replies so i'm just gonna wrap up here uh thank you to hannah hannah megan amy and lisa if you're listening back to this for uh coming to the long COVID hour and talking to us about your organization and all the work you've done um uh, i i sometimes sound like i'm felon about it but really I think it personally just like totally changed um, the kind of medical treatment that I got and just what I knew about my own condition, all the work you did. So I really, really can't say enough about how much I appreciate your work. Um, and thank you to all of the folks who came up to ask questions and everyone who stuck around this whole time to, to talk about this. Um, uh, just looking forward to next week. It's going to be Christmas, so I'm not expecting a big one, but I, I ran a poll and there were, you know, enough people who sounded like um, it could be meaningful to have a space to gather as a long COVID community on Christmas, especially for those of us who aren't able to travel or don't celebrate it. Um, so, so we're going to do that, but it's going to be chill. Um, hopefully, if that's useful to you, you'll come and, and be around for that. And then uh, I just wanted to announce the next film that we're going to discuss for our long COVID hour film discussion. Um, we're going to do uh, No Ordinary Campaign. And I'll put, I'll make a tweet about that. So um, you have that. But it's a uh, movie about um, ALS. And it's a documentary. So back to the documentaries. And along the lines of the long COVID hour film discussion, I started a, a Discord server for the long COVID hour film club. If you're enjoying those film discussions, you like watching a movie and talking about, uh, you know, how it relates to your experience with illness, with other patients with long COVID um, or ME or related illnesses, uh, I, I'll post um, a note about that too. And if you're interested, DM me and I'll give you the link to that discord. And, uh, we're hoping that'll, uh, grow into a little club. So that's it for me. Um, stay safe everyone until next week. And if you're not around next week, uh, have a nice Christmas or holidays. Love y'all. Oh, sorry. Did you want to make an announcement before we go? 
Yeah, sorry. Just one last thing before we wrap up. Um, just a reminder for folks who haven't heard, we're doing another long COVID moonshot action this week. Uh, we're sending unhappy holiday cards to our legislators demanding uh, annual funding for long COVID research for clinical trials. So um, if you want to hear more about that action, uh, just go to longcovidmoonshot.com. Um, yeah, just trying to continue pressuring our legislators to get more funding for this and get us the treatments we need. Yes, huge, huge thing to do. Uh, I hope everyone participates in that. All right, stay safe, everyone. See you all next week or in two weeks. And uh, thanks for coming tonight. Bye.